Good afternoon, everyone. Um, before we begin with the next case, I'll just mention that Justice Designate Riggs um, is finishing up her task at the Court of Appeals. Uh, I expect her to be sworn in this afternoon, and as such, uh, she probably will watch the uh, video of this argument, and I expect that she will participate in the decision in this case. Uh, that being said, uh, the next case is State versus Pickens, and we will hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, may it please the court, I'm Michael Casterline. I represent Troy Logan Pickens, the appellant in this matter. <clears throat> Mr. Pickens was convicted of three B1, and uh, one moment, I would like to reserve about 10 minutes for rebuttal, and I'll keep an eye on my time. Mr. Pickens was convicted of three B1 sex offenses and given three consecutive sentences on this. The, the issues I'd like to talk about is the 404, the admission of 404B evidence. Um, but first, we'd like to talk about the facts of this case. Mr. Pickens was a teacher at Durant Middle School here in Wake County in 2015. He, start, he was hired there and started teaching in late, I think, in July of 2015. If that school operates on a year-round schedule. In late July, a young a sixth grader named Ellen, we'll re pseudonym we'll refer to her as Ellen, 11-year-old, small in stature, um, started attending school there. This, Ellen was a troubled child. She'd been in therapy. She was on a prescription for Ritalin, Lexapro, and had a, had a therapist already. She had some anxiety issues. She had difficulty um, and did not always want to attend school. Um, and she ultimately only attended Durant for about six weeks. I think after the, the confrontation um, that happened in mid-September mid of 2015, she never again attended Durant Middle School. In any event, while she was at Durant, um, the teacher, the, the custodian noticed an issue with someone smearing feces on the wall of the bathroom in the sixth grade hallway. At some point, the custodian brought that to the attention of the principal, and the principal identified a number of students from the surveillance cameras that were in the hallway, and eventually determined that one of the students who could have done this, and it had been done a number of times, was Ellen. And they confronted Ellen about this, um, in mid-September of 2015. Um, she denied it. They talked about that issue with her parents, they told her that she'd need to get an evaluation before she attended school there again, and she never attended school there again. Time goes by. In 2016, Troy Pickens, was arrested and charged with a crime that occurred in Durham, at Lee, I think it was Neal Middle School in Durham, for an incident involving a 14-year-old eighth grade child at that school. He was arrested and uh, charged and incarcerated um, on those charges. Subsequent, that arrest made the news, and also it was also that Ellen's counselor noted that in the news and told 
Ellen's mother, well, hadn't Mr. Pickens also been a teacher at Durant? Now, subsequent to that, in April of 2017, Ellen made a disclosure to her mother that Mr. Pickens had touched her. The family then retained a civil lawyer um, upon being advised that they had to report this to the police and authorities and <clears throat> subsequently made the reports and Mr. Pickens was charged. Now, when the trial happened, the state introduced the evidence of Kathleen, who was the victim in the Durham cases, at trial on Ellen's trial. And that's, that's the gist of the issue here, is whether, whether that evidence, that 404B evidence, is properly admitted in this case. And what I would argue is that under the rule that it, it was not properly admitted. It, it, uh, improper under the rules of 404B. And what we have here is a situation where we have two very different um, girls. We have different incidents, different types of attacks, rapes, abuse, and we have two different relationships with those two, such that, the, that they should not properly have been admitted in this case. And I don't think that we have um, any dispute with the state or with the Court of Appeals below as to what the proper rule is. The rule, I think it's set forth in a number of cases, Stager, Beckelheimer, Watts, but the rule is that we need to have, in talking about 404B evidence, we need to have some unusual facts that that similarity is defined by some unusual facts that support the idea that the same person did both things. However, that the requirement isn't that those facts be unique or bizarre, but just that they rise to the level of supporting the inference that the same person did both. And you see there's some obvious tension in that rule, and I think if you read the majority opinion in the court below and Judge Murphy's de dissent, you see that it, it, it almost boils down to a half full, half empty argument. Some of the very things that the, the majority opinion mentions as similarities, Judge Murphy mentions as difference. For example, the, the, two, the victims, one is prepubescent, small in stature, weighs about 60 pounds, and the other is 100 pounds and five foot tall. Um, one's an eighth grader, one's a sixth grader. Is that a difference or a similarity? Is uh, the fact that he was a teacher in both schools can be viewed as a similarity, but in fact he wasn't Ellen's teacher at all. He was just a teacher in her school, never had any relationship with her. Um, whereas with Kathleen, the, the girl in the Durham case, he had a, a special relationship with her. He'd been her teacher in seventh grade. She was in his class again in eighth grade. He was giving her rides to events outside of school with the permission of her mother. 
So he had a, a closer relationship with her. Whereas in Ellen's case, there's no evidence from anyone else that anybody had ever seen the two of them speaking together uh, or any type of relationship at all. The Ellen's testimony is that he grabs her in the hallway, takes her into the bathroom, and this is a bathroom without a door, uh, open kind of walk-around bathroom, and, uh, and rapes her in the handicapped stall and then engages in um, scatolia corpophagia, where somewhat unusual events, and none of that is present in the case with Kathleen. So we have these two incidents, and we have the admission of this evidence. And what um, Judge Murphy was addressing is that there's, there are certainly, you can list similarities and differences, but there's nothing that makes, there's nothing listed in the similarities between these two incidents by the majority opinion that is a unique or unusual or distinguishing fact that's not present in almost any case where you've got a, I mean, any B1 sex offense involving an adult uh, abusing or raping a child is going to have some undressing, some use of force, some use of coercion. There's nothing unique or unusual in these facts that would overcome that, init that initial hurdle of saying something unusual about the case that supports the inference that, bo that, that both of them do this. And I think it's particularly, you know, this is not a case of recognizing that 404B is a rule of inclusion and that it may be admitted for other purposes, but we don't have a, we don't have a crime with an intent element. We don't have an issue, it, it's, a, it's a crime that has, a, if, if it happens, it's intentional. It's not, a, it's not like the case where you have incestuous pornography is put in as 404B evidence in a case where someone's accused of incest with a child. There you have a, a link and it's something unusual and out of the ordinary that supports an inference of intent. And it's not a case where it's, it's very simply the kind of facts that the majority opinion finds to be similar are again the kind of things that would be present in any case like this. And you read through the reported opinions on B1 sex offenses perpetrated by adults against children, you're going to find almost these similarities there. So for this rule to have any meaning at all, you know, that we have to have a way of applying this. And again, I think it's, it's something that we don't dispute what the rule is. I don't think the state disputes what the rule is. I think we both agree what the rule is. The majority opinion agrees what the rule is. I think the um, Judge Murphy agrees what the rule is. It's how we apply that rule to facts. And in this case, um, we have a situation where the, there's nothing, although there's some very unusual facts in Ellen's case, they're not present in Kathleen's case. Some of the things that, that if they had been present um, in Kathleen's case would be, we wouldn't have any means to argue at all. But we don't have anything like that. We have, in one case, we have a prepubescent child, stranger to the 
defendant grabbed randomly, apparently, in the school hallway repeatedly. She testified it happened every other day for weeks. Um, and then this very torturous event happening in a bathroom stall. And then we have the incident with Kathleen where there was a, a, a touching during class, uh, I think with clothes on, the year before. And then there was this incident where he's giving her a ride somewhere and taking her to his apartment. And they have a, a, a relationship, at least, where she's comfortable enough being alone with him. He's alone with her with the consent of her mother to give her a ride to an extracurricular activity. Uh, a very, very different type of event. And what, what you know, 404B evidence, I think this court has recognized before, is, is particularly problematic because it can be so influential. And, you know, in a, in a child sex case, it's, it's almost like if you have uh, 404B evidence, it's hard for the state to lose, and if you don't have it, it's hard for the state to win. Because this case, like so many others, really came down to, uh, absent the testimony of Kathleen, the state's case would rest entirely on the credibility of Ellen. Her, her saying this happened. No other fact would corroborate it at all. And so then when we bring in that 404B evidence, we, we risk the fact that it's going to, going to tilt, tilt the scale unfairly towards the state. And that's, that's a dangerous thing in a case like this. If, if I can take you back just for a moment to the question of similarities. I think there are two elements, as I read the state's brief, two additional elements that I haven't heard you address yet. Um, the state contends that the um, defendant's partial removal of his bottom garments and complete removal of the victim's bottom garments occurred in both incidents, and that's a similarity that shows a, a common scheme, as well as both victims saying that he used threats after the assault to discourage them from reporting it to anyone. Well, those are distinctive. I features. think that, that both of those are things that are going to be present in, uh, if we started reading child sex cases, we'd find threats in almost all of them, and we'd find disrobing in many, many, many of them. I think if a threat was unique, if somebody made a particularly unique threat, you know, I'm going to, um, you know, murder your family or, or harm you, then it might be that type of similarity that we would talk about, use some particular type of threat. But simply a threat that I'll harm you if you tell, is, is probably present in, in very, very many cases. And again, disrobing is, seems a, is a uh, precondition to sex in many, many ways, I suppose it can, but uh, not, certainly not unusual for the type of crime that it is. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that uh, Judge Murphy, I think, points out is, again, a, there is a way for a threat to be unique and to be unusual. Um, but, you know, make my day is a threat, it, it, you know, it's, if it's said, if it's said to two people, it, it becomes a unique feature of something, but we don't have that here. We have, we have 
he said he would hurt me. I think in one of them he said it would happen again um, if I told. They're, they're actually threats, but they're kind of different threats. So I think that that's, that's a situation where, again, I don't see the uh, similarity. I see actually a, a difference in the things. And I see, again, she, uh, there's uh, an apology to Kathleen, and he then drives her back to school and continues to see her. And she doesn't disclose for a year or two after the event happened herself when she writes a memoir or a writing piece a couple of years later when she's in 10th grade. So it's, it's not that there's a, um, and certainly, although she describes some coercion getting into the bedroom and that she told them to stop, um, they apparently got along amicably the rest of the, the time that they were in school and uh, dr drove her home. And, and I don't even believe, I think from the facts, it wasn't even clear that she was intending to disclose when she wrote the piece that she wrote for her class that uh, she talking about an event that changed her life that she was intending to disclose and um, at that point in time. So it's not the same type of threat or coercion. So we have a situation like, again, where, where you look at something and say something similar, and it, I suppose it depends on what type of lens that we want to use and how closely we want to focus. In, in, in all B1 sex cases involving children, we're going to have a, an adult, and it may be a coach or a pastor or a teacher or a scout leader or something like that, somebody in a, a position of authority or an adult who has a relationship with a child, and we're going to have a child, we're going to have a sex act, we're going to have, those are the similarities that are going to be common. And whether we say a coach is similar to a teacher or a pastor is similar to a scout leader or something like that is, is could be a similarity, or we could also say it's a difference. How the, how the access of the adult to the child um, is occurred. And I think that's when we, that's what Judge Murphy is pointing out in his dissent is that there's not anything unusual about the facts in this case that make it distinguishable from, from any number of other cases. And I think he points that out, I believe in his opinion in a footnote. And I think that that's really what we have. And the rule, again, as I started out talking about the rule here, the rule has kind of a two prongs, some unusual facts. Similarity is defined as some unusual facts that warrant the inference that the same person did both. So it seems to me you need to have something that's out of the ordinary for that type of crime. And then, but, but then we have the caveat, the however doesn't have to be unique or bizarre. It just has to warrant the reasonable inference that the same person did both. And there's a lot of tension in that rule, and that rule could, you know, I, I suppose we could take any number of cases and, and apply that rule to them. And, and, and here, two judges saw it one way, sufficient similarity. One judge said that it's not. And so I think that, but without some clarification of what the meaning of, of that is, 
I'd say on these facts, we have, we have some very different, we have two very different girls. They're very, uh, we have a prepubescent 11-year-old, sixth grader, 60 pounds, troubled child, stranger to the defendant. We have very different kinds of abuse going on. We have uh, this rape coupled in a pub, in a bathroom of a school with the accompanying and disturbing fact of the corpophagia, um, the scotolia, very disturbing, coercion, crying, force, threats. And then we have this other incident with an adolescent girl, a 14-year-old, normal size, special relationship that they've had for time, um, having her alone at his apartment, watching TV, sharing a sandwich, and having sex, conventional intercourse, and a rape. So those are very, very different things. And it seems like if we put in the, the evidence of Kathleen's attack and rape into the trial of Ellen, we risk the fact that we don't, we unfairly influence the jury. If there's no other questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court. My name is Sherry Lawrence. I'm a special deputy attorney general with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this case. This case is before this court on the defendant's uh, notice of appeal of Judge Hunter Murphy's dissenting opinion. This case is also before this court on the sentencing issue uh, where this court granted the state's petition for discretionary review as to that issue. I will address both issues in my argument starting with Kathleen's 404B testimony. As this court is well aware, Rule 404B provides that evidence of other crimes, wrongs, or acts is not admissible to prove the character of a person in order to show that they acted in conform conformity therewith. However, evidence of a defendant's prior bad acts can be admitted for other purposes to show motive, intent, plan, scheme, and design, the purposes for which the evidence was admitted in this case. This court has repeatedly stated that Rule 404B is a clear rule of inclusion. This court has been markedly liberal in admitting evidence of similar sex offenses by a defendant. For this case, the defendant is solely contesting uh, the Court of Appeals ruling that the evidence was sufficiently similar under 404B. The, sim sim the similarities in this case were sufficiently similar for 404B and were properly admitted. There were key similarities between Kathleen's 404B testimony and the sex acts com committed upon her by the defendant, as well as the sex acts of against, against Ellen. The defendant used his position as a middle school teacher in both cases to exercise his control over both middle school age girls to commit the sex offenses during school related activities and school time. The type of victim is very similar here. As I stated, both victims were middle aged, middle school age girls, albeit Ellen was 11 years old. When they occurred, she was in the sixth grade. She had just started middle school. Similar, similarly, um, Kathleen was 
13 years old when the first act occurred. She turned 14 one day prior to the rape. However, prior to the rape, the defendant actually sexually touched her in class at Durham, at a Durham County school, the Emile Middle School. So both girls were middle school students. They were very close in age. The size and the body size of each girl was very similar as well. Kathleen was five foot two. She weighed 100 pounds. Ellen was only four inches shorter at four foot 10, and she weighed 60 to 65 pounds, which is 30 to 35 pound difference. However, um, they were very similar in body size and age. In addition, the environment in which the defendant gained access was similar. He was a chorus teacher. He accessed both girls during school hours, albeit he ac accessed Kathleen and committed the acts during extended school hours. However, he was still taking her, or was supposed to be taking her to a school-related activity, but then took a detour to his apartment to commit his acts. In addition, while Ellen was on her way to the office, uh, something she did daily to take her dose of Ritalin, um, because she was previously diagnosed in third grade with ADHD. And every day around 1210, she went to the office to take that medication. The evidence established that the defendant also had a planning period during this time. Ellen stated the defendant would pull her into the bathroom and commit these acts on almost a every other day basis. She started middle school at Durant in July of 2015. These acts were reported, they were delayed in disclosure, true, until 2017. However, her mom also noticed changes in her behavior prior to that time. An additional similarity between the two acts is the actual sex acts themselves. With Kathleen, the defendant engaged in sexual intercourse, vaginal sexual intercourse with her immediately. It only lasted a few minutes and it was done. In addition, with Ellen, he also attempted to engage in vaginal sexual intercourse with uh, her. However, he was unable to do, do so because of the size of her vagina, at which point he then turned to anal intercourse. So the sex acts are very similar as well. The length of the sex acts, as I noted, is also very similar. They only last, each only lasts for a few minutes, being five minutes or less. In addition, the defendant's threats against both victims is very similar. Uh, the defendant threatened to harm the victims if he, if they reported it to anyone, and that was done um, to, to continue and to continue to perpetuate the acts. The defendant's prior acts with Kathleen showed his his intent, his motive, plan, and design to sexually assault middle school age girls. He had access through through his role as a middle school chorus teacher at, at Durant Middle School. This court sta stated in Beckelheimer that near identical circumstances are not required. The incidents only need to share some unusual facts that go to the purpose other than the propensity to commit the current offenses. And here we have those similarities and they were admitted, properly admitted for those purposes of motive, intent, plan, scheme, and design. The Court of Appeals properly affirmed the trial court's ruling that the acts were similar. The defendant did not contest temporal proximity at, in the Court of Appeals or at trial, and that issue not, is not before this court. 
Turning next to the Rule 403 relevancy test, the defendant did not discuss that. So can I ask you just one more question about similarity, if I may? Um, and I know this is not a case that either party cited, but in, in my research finding, State versus Webb, which was a 2009 case from the Court of Appeals, and the, what strikes me about that case is that there the Court of Appeals said that there wasn't sufficient similarity, and they said that um, the court must require more similarity between the acts than what was provided herein, namely that the victims were young girls in defendant's care, the incidents happened in his home, and he told the girls not to report his behavior. And so if in that case we said those elements were not sufficiently similar to justify admission of 404B evidence, what I, I'm just wrestling with what is distinctive about this case um, that, that gives us more similarity. And if I may clarify, is that a Court of Appeals case? Yes, it's definitely a Court of Appeals case. Okay. <laughs> um, I would contend that um, in that particular, and I'm not familiar with the facts of that particular case right now, but um, based upon what Your Honor has shared, in that particular case, uh, it appears as if possibly they focused more on the differences in that case versus the similarities. In this particular case, we have the manner, the manner that is similar in which he committed these acts. And I would contend that pulling his pants halfway down during each sex act is not something that's generalized common behavior for every single sex offense. Surely you can commit a sex offense without disrobing um, by leaving your underwear on. I've had plenty of cases where that have, has occurred. Uh, however, here with each victim, and each victim specifically testified to the manner in which he committed it. He committed it by not removing his clothes, pulling them halfway down, but disrobing them which I think is very distinct, it was very uh, a distinctive similarity for each of those acts. In addition, I think the role, his role as a middle school teacher, chorus teacher at both schools is also very important. Um, he's utilizing his role as a teacher to exercise the control over these middle school age prepubescent girls to commit these acts. And in addition, he grabs each girl as to pull them into an isolated area away from people so that he can commit his acts without anyone seeing and knowing of them. In particular, for Kathleen, he did this during the school hours, because it was an extended school hours, because they were on the way to a school activity, uh, by doing so, taking them to his apartment. However, he again was able to strategically uh, utilize his planning period to pull Ellen into a bathroom by exercising his control over her by touching her and pulling her by her shirt and her ponytail into the area, an isolated area to commit his offenses. And he did the same with Kathleen as to pulling her into his bedroom to commit those offenses as well. So those are some additional similarities. Uh, the threats are additional similarities. Uh, he threatened both of them, which does is very important, added on top of the other similarities I just named. The type of victim is very important as well. So he's not going after a 17-year-old that's about to turn 18 or a 15-year-old that's about to turn 16. He's strategically preying on 11-year-old 11, 11 girls, 13-year-old girls, and 14-year-old girls who are in the 6th, 7th, and 8th grades. The record evidence established that Kathleen, she was, she was age 13 when he started sexually assaulting her by touching. She turned 14 uh, 
Ellen was 11. So the type of age is also important and it's indicative of the defendant's intent to prey on girls of that age and middle school age girls. If there are no other questions as to similarity, I will move to the Rule 403 balancing test. The defendant did not specifically address that, and we would contend that the dissent did not address that issue as well, and we would ask this court to affirm the Court of Appeals majority ruling as to that 403 balancing test, that the probative value of the evidence substantially outweigh any prejudicial effect. Under 15A, 1443, the defendant has also failed to establish prejudice in this case. There is not a reasonable possibility that the jury would reach a different verdict. Here, the defendant talks about um, Ellen's testimony and how her credibility was at issue and how this 404B testimony tilted the scales in the state's favor. However, the defendant does fail to acknowledge and fails to mention the medical evidence that was provided in this particular case. There was substantial medical testimony to corroborate Ellen's testimony and her uh, allegations against the defendant. Ellen, prior to 2015, Ellen's mother as well as her doctors established that she had ADHD and she suffered from anxiety. She was diagnosed, I think, with both of them at the end of third grade. She was on medication for those. She was excited about going to middle school, but she was also very nervous in 2015. Once she started middle school, she did not have any problems. She continued to do well. She thrived for two weeks. However, her mother, her mother soon noticed after two weeks or so, her behavior started to change. She also started to notice physical changes about Ellen. She noticed first off, Ellen's mother noticed first off that Ellen started to text her around 11.30 a.m., stating that she wanted to leave school early because she didn't want to be at school. That is significant because Ellen went to the office to receive her medication at 12.10 p.m. each day. And this is when the sexual acts occurred in the handicapped stall, the girls' bathroom on the sixth grade hall. This evidence was enough for the jury to infer that Ellen wanted to leave school because she did not want to go to the office to get her medication and be sexually assaulted by the defendant during that time period. Eventually, Ellen's mother also testified that she did not want to go back to school. Ellen just said, I can't do it, I can't go back to school. In fact, the jury saw video footage of Ellen's parents trying to get her into the car to take her back to school, to make her go back to school. Ellen started to disassociate herself with uh, her school friends, her neighborhood friends, her younger brother, whom she had a very, very good relationship with prior to these acts. She played soccer. She was on one of the state's top soccer teams. She loved the sport and she loved to play. However, her mother stated around this time she started losing interest in that. She didn't want to go to practice. She didn't want to do anything other than stay home with them. She stopped eating. She lost significant weight. Her weight dropped to 58.8 pounds with a BMI of 12.2, which was low for her age group. There was medical testimony that established this. Ellen's medical condition resulted in her being hospitalized and needing a feeding tube placed in her in order for her to get the essential nutrients to feed her and that was required to sustain her body. She was then diagnosed with avoidance restrictive food intake disorder, which caused her to restrict her food intake because of fear of vomiting. 
This evidence was important because based on the timing of the development of this avoidance restricted food intake condition, it is reasonable to infer that the fear, her fear of vomiting, if she ate, most likely resulted from the defendant's multiple acts of forced, uh, of forced um, eating feces during the sexual assaults. She testified that the defendant put his feces in her mouth and that she gagged over and over and over again, and she actually threw up in her mouth when this occurred every, almost every other day. In light of all the evidence, it is reasonable to infer that Ellen's worsened anxiety, her isolation, her withdrawn behavior, and her fear of returning to middle school resulted from the defendant's repeated sexual molestation. And there was tons of medical evidence establishing her diagnosis. Um, prior to this time period, she only suffered from ADHD and anxiety, which were both controlled. In addition, there was medical evidence about delayed disclosure. Uh, the defendant did point out that she delayed in disclosing this. She didn't disclose it until an article hit the newspapers or someone told her about it. However, there was plenty of testimony from experts about delayed disclosure, that kids sometimes delay in disclosing sex acts. Dr. Winman, a pediatrician at WakeMed, testified as an expert in pediatrics and child abuse pediatrics that all children do not immediately report their abuse. She testified that sometimes children do nonverbal behaviors to try to indicate, to try to tell people what's really happening without saying explicitly, this is what is happening to me. In addition, her counselor also testified as an expert, Kristen Mastro. She testified that it's not unusual for initial disclosures not to have all of the details because disclosure is a process that happens over time. She also testified that some characteristics of other children who have reported sexual abuse often delayed disclosure of the abuse, changes in behavior, significantly high anxiety, not wanting to be away from significant caregivers. Sometimes if the child is a little older, the grades will drop if they're in school. The record evidence showed that Ellen possessed a good majority of these characteristics, if not all, except for her maintaining good grades. In light of all the record evidence, there is not a reasonable possibility that a jury would have reached a different result. This court should affirm the Court of Appeals decision on the 404B issue and determine that the 404B testimony was sufficiently similar. The probative value of the 404B testimony outweighed any prejudicial effect and that in light of the other trial evidence, the defendant was not prejudiced under 15A 1443. In addition, I would like to note for the 404B evidence that the jury, they received two limiting instructions for this evidence. Uh, the trial court specifically outlined, um, instructed them not to consider this evidence uh, to determine his guilt for these offenses. And he did so in transcript volumes, I think 10 and eight. He did so right before Kathleen testified as well as in the final jury charge to the jury. If there are no further questions on the 404B evidence, the state will move to the sentencing issue briefly. Uh, this, is, this is the issue that the state filed um, and included in the state's P PDR to this court and this court granted on December 13, 2022. In this case, the defendant not, did not file a responsive brief to this case. This, the state would ask this court to determine that the Court of Appeals did not err that the Court of Appeals erred by vacating defendant's sentence and remanding his case to the trial court for resentencing. 
The trial court did not abuse its discretion in this particular case. He was sentenced to the minimum consecutive sentence. Uh, it was clear that these were egregious facts, uh, albeit unnecessary and maybe unwarranted comments. However, under Bright and Langford, we would ask this court to uh, reverse the Court of Appeals and determine that the sentence was properly, properly entered. And I would just briefly note that the defendant, he was convicted of the two sex offenses and the rape under the adult offender statute, which imposes a minimum of a 300-month active sentence on the defendant. In addition, under subsection C of, under subsection C of both statutes, it allows the trial court to deviate from the regular sentence, structured sentencing and enter egregious aggravation if he deems necessary, which would also include lifetime without parole. The trial court did not do this here. The trial court gave him the minimum as to each offense. Do you so, agree that the court had the legal authority to either run the sentences concurrent or consecutive? Just, it is basically just the court has complete discretion there. Yes, Your Honor. So I think the strongest argument that this is, falls into the, our line of cases whether it's constitutionally impermissible, is that you do you have the reference and then you have a part of sentencing where the court could have chosen one of two options and it chose the harsher of the two sentences. I think the argument would be that's the extra, some, in some cases that's missing, but here that's the extra little piece to say that although you could go one way or the other and what was the judge really saying there, that, that plus the fact that the judge chose the harsher of the two options is enough evidence to say that it was impermissible. What, what's your response to that argument? My response to that is that he did not choose the harsher option. While he did run the, the sentences consecutively, he could have chosen an even harsher option under subsection C of each statute, which allowed him to uh, deviate from the structured sentencing and impose life imprisonment without parole for each offense and then run each of those consecutively. In addition, he sentenced him at the minimum not the top of the presumptive range, the minimum, the minimum of 300 months. So he had the discretion under 1354A to run him at the top. However, he did not do that. So based upon that, is our argument that the judgment is valid and there's a presumption that the judgment is valid and there's no evidence to indicate that he specifically punished him uh, by sentencing him to consecutive sentences when it was the actual minimum sentence for each offense. Counsel, I'm, I'm sorry. You, so you're focused on the sentence. I, I want to focus on the words that were used. In uh, State versus Cannon, the, um, the trial court in that situation uh, told the parties uh, if the defendant was convicted, uh, he or she would get the maximum term. And then uh, towards the end of the trial, uh, the trial court inquired if uh, counsel had relayed the penalty, quote, penalty um, to um, the, the client. In State versus Boone, in Chambers, the, uh, the trial court said, I'm going to impose an active sentence if your client pleads not guilty. And, and this court in both of those cases indicated from that direct evidence that you could reasonably infer that the sentence was based on something improper. How do the words used by, well, before we get there, did, 
Did the trial court here make any comment that there would be a penalty imposed for pleading not guilty uh, or that uh, they he would definitely get a particular sentence if he pled not guilty? No, Your Honor. There was never any infringement on his right to extra, on his right to exercise uh, his right under to a jury trial. So there was never any statement made to him that if you go to trial, then this is what you're going to be faced with. Um, it's solely one part of his final statement to the defendant that is the focus here, and he kind of he's going through. Um, his comments, uh, historical references, talking about what has transpired in the trial, talking about how egregious the facts are, stating that there are other grown women or there are grown women in which the defendant could have had not girls, or he didn't specifically refer to the defendant, that people can have versus young girls. Um, so there was never any type of infringement on the exercise of his right to a jury trial in this particular case. Right, and, and so, so what um, Judge Fox actually said uh, at, at the end, which I believe the defendant takes uh, most umbrage with, is that uh, they didn't have a choice uh, and you, Mr. Pickens, had a choice. Uh, now, given, given Cannon and Boone, um, can it reasonably be inferred from that comment that there was some penalty to be imposed? I think most importantly, when looking at the entire context of his colloquy to the defendant um, and how he kind of went in talking about everything, I, I think the, the inference can be drawn that he was referring to the defendant's choice in sleeping with these girls or having vaginal intercourse with these particular girls when you kind of look at everything that he's going through because he's talking about the legislature how they made the changes. He's talking about how bad these offenses are uh, to sleep with young girls. And he goes on to talk about the egregious facts of this particular case. And we would infer based upon that context that that's, that's what that shows. And here, um, he didn't get the, he did not get the maximum. And there's no record evidence to point to the fact that he specifically penalized him for these egregious facts as he termed for exercising his right to a jury trial because he received the minimum sentence for each, each offense, which subsection C, even back then in 2019, allowed him to impose egregious aggravation. In addition, the state also filed a notice of intent for an aggravated factor, uh, aggravating factor of um, that he violated a position of control, and that's on page 34 of the record um, however, that was not imposed. The state did not request it. The state requested these consecutive sentences, and the trial court acquiesced to that request. And in light of all of that evidence, uh, we would contend that his sentences were properly imposed um, in accordance with the evidence in this particular case. And this court has actually said that these types of consecutive sentences are not unusual in sex offenses such as this. And based upon all of that, those, we would contend the sentences are proper. If there are no further questions, the state would rest on its brief and ask this court to affirm the Court of Appeals holding as to 404B and to reverse the Court of Appeals holding as to the sentencing issue. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal.
sentence. First, I'd like to just say a couple of things about the sentencing. We did file a response to the petition for uh, discretionary review, and I think I felt that and expressed that I believe the Court of Appeals properly analyzed the case under Boone and Cannon. Cannon is a decision of this court. Cannon is subsequent to the two cases cited by the state, Langford and Bright. Cannon was decided in 1990. Um, and basically the, the rule from Cannon is that it creates an exception to the general rule of abuse of discretion. It says when it can be inferred that the decision was based at least in part doesn't have to be totally dispositive, at least in part, upon an improper consideration, he's entitled to a new sentencing hearing. And we, we instruct juries every day, you can, intent is seldom provable by direct evidence, but may be inferred from circumstances. And three judges of the Court of Appeals listened to those, read that comment, and inferred that he was intending to do, in part at least, intending to do what he was talking about, which is, the choice to have a trial. And that's what's specifically referenced by the comments, is the choice to have a child. All of these cases are horrible. All, many, many crimes involving victims are horrible, horrible cases. But there's Can, I, can I point out something I think you're, that Justice Berger was getting at, which is that in canon, that was really the only reasonable inference. Whereas here, there's an explanation for what the trial court said that is, you know, what you might think was like the innocent explanation or, or a completely appropriate statement to make, which is a the trial court for handing down the sentence condemning the fact that the defendant had a choice to commit the crime or not, whereas the victims did not have a choice in choosing not to be the victims of that crime. And in choosing which of those two the trial court meant, uh, which was not something that was ha the court was doing in canon, don't we have to consider the fact that we have this presumption that the trial court knows the law? In other words, why would we presume that the court was doing the thing that is, is, uh, would render the sentence unlawful when there's an explanation for what the trial court saying that would be permissible? Why wouldn't we presume and put the burden on your client to show that that was not what the court was doing? Are you following me? What, what, why well, wouldn't we I have it that, the other way I around? think that we, we do put the burden on us, and we, we raise the argument, three judges serving on the Court of Appeals, elected, review the record, and again, Cannon sets an exception to the general rule about abuse of discretion, says if it can be reasonably inferred, reasonable inference, that the decision was at least in part, doesn't have to be totally dispositive, at least in part based upon an improper consideration, and then we have a comment that specifically references the fact of them having to testify in court, not their general victimization, but the fact that they had to testify in court because he wanted a trial. Is it reasonable for those three judges to make that inference? And that's all we're saying. That's, that's what Cannon says. That's a decision of this court. And we think those, the judge was following that and that you should find that discretionary review was improperly allowed. And, and it just means he gets a new sentencing hearing and if the judge wants to explain his reasoning differently or, or talk about it and talk about the facts, people can present evidence at sentencing of aggravation and mitigation. It just means he gets a new sentencing hearing. Counsel, I think there may be, be an, a nuance here that uh, 
is, is being missed that I think maybe Justice Dietz is getting at, if I'm not misunderstanding him. Um, it's one thing to say, if the, if the trial court says, um, so suppose here the trial court said, they didn't have a choice, and you, Mr. Pickens, had a choice whether to plead guilty and put them through this. Had the court said that, then you could make that reasonable inference that the sentencing was affected uh, by that. But here, it's not clear when the trial court said they didn't have a choice, and you, Mr. Pickens, did, whether in talking about the choice Mr. Pickens made, the trial court was referring to his choice or his decision to plead not guilty or his decision to commit the crime. Well, the, the fact that I would argue that leads to the, the inference that it, that, that it is exactly the decision to have a trial is he's referring to their, their having to testify. They come in here and have to talk. It would be hard to come in here in front of a jury and talk even about consensual sex. That's what his comment was. And so that's talking about the act of the trial itself. And all those judges did, Judge Zachary and Judge Collins and Judge Murphy, is say, well, it's reasonable to infer from that statement that at least in part, he was being influenced by the defendant's decision to have a trial. But you're asking us to make a double inference. First, to infer that in referring to Mr. Pickens' choice, the trial court meant the choice to... Um, plead not guilty and not the choice whether to commit the, the offense uh, and then to infer from that on top of that inference that uh, the trial court's statement indicates that um, it had an impact on the sentencing. Well, I think that Cannon gives the appellate court, Cannon again is an exception to the general rule. The general rule is if it's, if it's within the range, it's presumed valid, absent some showing of abuse of discretion. Canon's an exception to that rule that says, if three judges of the Court of Appeals make the reasonable inference, that's what Canon says, that it's at least in part based upon an improper consideration, he gets a new sentencing hearing. That's the rule from Canon. Well, but Canon and Boone both were Fair Sentencing Act cases, right? They were decided, yes, prior to 1994. And with fair sentencing, the judge had a great deal of discretion in um, uh, balancing or weighing aggravating and mitigating uh, circumstances. So, yeah. so, so in canon, when he says, look, I'm, I'm going to impose a penalty, um, uh, be, or, or you advise them of the penalty if they were convicted, uh, that goes not necessarily to the sentence, but to the judge's weighing. Isn't that different from um, um, our, our cases now under structured sentencing or the, our trial court's ability under structured well, sentencing? Well, the... the I disagree with the idea that there was so much more discretion. You know, there's, a, there's very little discretion within the boxes on the grid. The big discretion comes in the ability to run sentences consecutive or concurrent. And in this case, that's, those are big, big boxes. They're 300 months each. And so what we have, the, the Court of Appeals, following the rule of this court in canon, recognized that the trial court had discretion. They, meant, they specifically referenced that. 
but they say it can at least be inferred from those comments that the decision was in part based upon an improper consideration. And that's, and that's what Cannon tells them they should, that it's proper for them to look at. That's the standard of review articulated in our brief to that court. That's referenced in my response to their petition for discretionary review is the Cannon-Boone cases, which uh, if, you know, I think that's the rule. And uh, so long as that's the rule, I think if, those, if three judges make that inference from the comments and the sentence imposed, then that's proper for a new sentencing hearing. And I'd like to just, I guess I'm, I guess I'm out of time if there's no further questions, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, everyone.